Revolution is nothing without feminism. These grievances is really old, you know. It's it's even from the from the Gaddafi times and also after the revolution. There are so many grievances. There there were so many mistakes. I hope the world really appreciate how millions of young people in Yemen uh, did not favor tribalism and wanted to have a civil state like any other country. Maybe one day we are going to be able to forgive Syria as Syria, not the regime. Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond. Hello and thank you for joining us for this special episode of The New Arab Voice, which revisits the widespread pro-democracy movement that drastically changed the face of the Middle East and North Africa. Ten years ago today, a Tunisian fruit seller set himself on fire out of pure desperation, triggering the Arab Spring, a wave of anti-government protests that shook the region. Rising up against totalitarian governments to demand dignity and freedom is no easy feat. And restructuring a whole nation in the aftermath presents an even bigger challenge. For this reason, my co-host Guy and I spoke to the individuals who were there 10 years ago, those who worked to improve their country today, and others who answered a question that was asked time and again. How did we get here? In this two-part series, we'll be focusing on five Arab countries, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, Egypt, and Syria. For the first part, we'll be speaking to the young man who was just 16 when protests started in Tunisia, the birthplace of the Arab Spring, and who now runs the country's first youth-focused think tank. We'll then be looking at neighboring Libya, where civil society activists carry on their peace-building efforts in the midst of the crisis, violence, and instability that has plagued the country since its uprising. And after this episode concludes, don't forget to tune in to part two, in which we'll be speaking to the brave women who fought for change in their respective countries. Our guests will include Monat Tahawi, Afrah Nasser, and Khulud Hilmi. On December 17, 2010, a 26-year-old Tunisian street vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi immolated himself in front of a municipal building in Sidi Bouzid. That morning, the young man carted his wheelbarrow of fruit and vegetable towards a local market when police officers suddenly stopped to harass him. After refusing to pay a bribe, Bouazizi was beaten, his fruit and electric scales taken from him. Following the incidents, which left him sobbing and outraged, Bouazizi headed for the governor's office and demanded to see an official. After being denied entry, Mohamed Bouazizi's desperation came to a head. He doused himself in gasoline and lit a match. The young street vendor died of his injuries on January 4th, 2011. His existence was no longer invisible to a world who didn't used to care for him. And now, his memory will forever be impressed in people's memories and history books across the world. The wave of revolution sweeping the Arab world started in a forgotten town in the flatlands of Tunisia. It was an unlikely place for history to be made. 
President Zine Labidin Ben Ali had been ruling Tunisia for 23 years when his own people took to the streets to demand his resignation. Bouazizi became a symbol of Tunisia's economic struggles under a corrupt government led by a president that enjoyed an extravagant lifestyle. Since taking power in 1987, Ben Ali promised democratic reforms, but under his rule, political dissent and protests were stifled. Dubbed the Jasmine Revolution, Tunisia's 28-day largely peaceful uprising was met with a deployment of police and security forces, resulting in at least 338 deaths. As Tunisia's state-controlled media outlets remained silent on the demonstrations, Tunisian bloggers and social media users shed light on the events on the ground, attracting international attention and inspiring civilians in neighbouring countries. The world finally took notice of the protests, which saw all members of Tunisian society join in in the streets, especially the young. There is one moment to remember in the Tunisian uprising, which was the 14th of January 2011, the day where, on Habib Bourguiba Avenue, hundreds of thousands of people yelled, get out, in front of the interior ministry, which represented the organ of the dictatorial regime's power and repression. The Ministry of Interior was really the organ of repression through police violence and torture. And I think the strong moment that was witnessed around the world and really marked the revolution and subsequently caused the departure of President Ben Ali was the fall of his regime and the start of Tunisia's democratic transition. I was 16, so I was still a teenager, but the Arab Spring was characterized by engagement from all factions of society, at least in Tunisia, so from the young to the old. It was especially the revolution, as we called it in Tunisia, the revolution of youth, the revolution of dignity, of freedom. This is Mohamed Gadira, 26, who lives in Monastir, a city on Tunisia's vast Mediterranean coast. Driven by the country's weakening economy, many young Tunisians his age are forced to tackle the rugged sea before them, traveling to Europe in the hopes of finding a better life. This summer, a flurry of boats arrived on Italian shores, carrying frazzled Tunisians, happy to have survived the treacherous journey. The surge was due in part to the economic fallout of lockdown measures in a country that relies heavily on tourism, where almost half a million are employed in the now-ravaged sector. Young people are the ones who suffer the most from this economic downturn. In fact, almost 37% of those aged between 15 and 24 are unemployed, according to recent World Bank figures. Economic opportunity was one of the central demands of young people in the Arab Spring. Ten years on, the youth across the region has been forced to leave their homes because much remains the same, and in some places, it's gotten even worse. Unlike his peers who have had to flee, Mohammed is staying put and he's trying to encourage young people to participate in Tunisia's political system in order to carry forward the goals of the 2011 protests. In Tunisia, we had revolution-era marks of people, young people especially, who sacrificed themselves so we can today live in a country that continues its path of democratic transition. I think that today, the youth's role is not finished, but on the contrary. It's only just begun. Because 10 years later, we can assess our strengths, but especially our weaknesses. Youth organizations in Tunisia should unite, and the youth, now more than ever, should continue to keep the faith and especially make changes. Who would have thought in 2010 
that Ben Ali's regime would disappear in a matter of months. Back then, hope wasn't allowed. People didn't dare think of it. But this revolution still succeeded. I think that hope has permitted today to create a democratic path for Tunisia in the next 10 years, and especially make it succeed on the social and economic front. For this reason, he founded Tunisia's first youth-focused think tank, Shnawa Bernamjek, which he founded in 2019, just before the country's latest presidential and legislative elections. During the last elections, we noted that the youth in particular were not very engaged. Yet we became engaged with a group of young Tunisian citizens to create Shubar Namjek, which was the first to compare political platforms in Tunisia. The idea was to provide reliable and objective information, as well as put forth candidate and party platforms so Tunisian electors can vote for factual and objective platforms, rather than out of emotions, feelings and perceptions. We also came up with a quiz, the quiz of Shubert Namjek, which is a system to help decision-making. We implemented a digital strategy on social media to reach young fractions of the Tunisian population, especially, but not limited to, those aged between 18 and 35. We succeeded in mobilizing more than half a million Tunisians. We also managed to involve Tunisia's political class. We produced videos as part of an initiative called the Questions Box, for which we ask questions on controversial issues, such as the death penalty and gender equality. We push politicians into expressing their positions clearly and transparently, so electors receive all the necessary information to vote as they see fit. Mohammed told me that he's proud of his country. He believes a revolution takes more than just a couple of weeks. And he's thankful that Tunisia has already managed to set up a completely new political ruling class after the downfall of Ben Ali. Although organizations like Shnawa Bernemjek work to inspire civic engagement in the country, a lot of Tunisians also remain disillusioned by their elected representatives. Following elections in October 2019, the moderate Islamist Ennahda movement, a major player since the revolution, became the largest party in Tunisia's deeply fragmented parliament, but only won a quarter of the seats. Just in September this year, Prime Minister Hisham Mishishi was sworn in to lead Tunisia's third government in less than a year, following the resignation of his predecessor Elias Fakfak. As Tunisian politics remain plagued by divisions and crises, the country's glaring issues are left to fester. Youssef Sharif, director of the Columbia Global Center Tunis, described the rift between the Tunisian government and its frustrated constituents. So there is a lot of disenchantment among the population. There is a lot of hatred towards the political class. And the political parties are actually very small with a um, very limited number of people um, active inside them or voting for them. And even the one party that is still strong and that is still consolidated and that didn't fall apart since the revolution, so Anahda, um, even that party is now facing uh, internal difficulties and it is getting less and less votes each election. Uh, so there is this disconnect between population and politicians. In the polls, the political parties and the parliament and the MPs are among those uh, on whom people have the least confidence and on whom they have uh, the least expectations. So this is actually deepening the problem of Tunisia today because you have politicians who by the end of the day are not representative of their population even if they were voted and if they are there through non-authoritarian means. 
Since the revolution, Tunisians have held numerous protests over widespread unemployment, lack of investment for the country's development, as well as decaying health, electricity, and water services. In November, Prime Minister Mashishi announced a record budget deficit of 14% of Tunisia's GDP. Part of the reason why people demonstrated in 2010-2011 was because they considered their economic situation bad or they've seen their um, economic situation as uh, deserving better. These people who demonstrated after the Arab Spring, I mean, their situation didn't improve after after the fall of dictatorship. Then came the series of terrorist attacks between and political crisis. So between 2013 and 2016, during that period, the tourism industry was hit very hardly and foreign and local investors were investing less. Then the situation started to look more promising by 2017, 18, 19, uh, or at least the future looked improvable. And then came COVID. So with COVID, the situation really went bad because the tourism industry collapsed, imports and exports decreased radically. I mean, new jobs became scarce. And of course, there is less uh, internal and foreign investment. So uh, now that the winter is here, uh, there is um, a broader feeling that the situation is bad and it's going to deteriorate. Whether this is true, whether this is um, just pessimistic thoughts that no one knows, but at least from the current indicators, there is no bright end in sight. As the COVID-19 pandemic further ravaged the economy, Tunisian medics went on strike following the death of a young doctor who fell down an elevator shaft when the doors opened without a lift in place. The tragedy was the result of a fault that was reported several years earlier and represented the failings of Tunisia's long-neglected healthcare system. Freedom of speech is widely perceived as being one of Tunisia's Arab Spring successes, as it is guaranteed in the country's 2014 constitution. Last month, however, Amnesty International urged Tunisian authorities to stop using, quote, largely outdated, overly broad and repressive laws, unquote, to crack down on freedom of expression online. Since 2018, at least 40 people, including bloggers and activists, have faced criminal prosecution for criticizing authorities online. Now, of course, when we compare Tunisia to the region and when we compare Tunisia today to Tunisia during Ben Ali, the situation is great. But when we look carefully, we find that there, are, there is um, creeping authoritarianism uh, that is around, uh, be it at the level of the institutions that are in charge of crushing democracy, so the Ministry of Interior, um, the intelligence agencies, and so on. There are also threats from populist groups in Tunisia with clear authoritarian tendencies, be it politicians or political parties or political movements and so on. Um, there is also the neighborhood. Uh, a lot of countries in the region are opposed to democracy and are uh, doing their best to stop democracy in, in Tunisia and the rest of the Arab world. And finally, one should not neglect the fact that because of the economic situation and other problems, there is an important segment of the population that supports uh, moving back to authoritarianism and ending the democratic transition. So all this together makes 
the situation of liberties always under threat. And as Amnesty showed and other organizations showed, we've seen actually multiple attempts against democracy, uh, be it through arrests, uh, be it through intimidation, but nothing systematic like we've seen in Tunisia under Ben Ali or like we see in Egypt and other places. So 10 years later, the democracy in Tunisia is definitely not guaranteed. It's definitely not secure. It's there, but it's facing multiple threats and it can be cracked anytime. Though Tunisia's democracy remains fragile, it nonetheless represents a relative success among Arab Spring nations. The country's political and economic woes will not disappear anytime soon. But as Tunisians make their voices heard through community-led civic initiatives and peaceful protests, neither will the spirit that sparked the revolution itself. On the heels of revolts by neighbors Tunisia and Egypt, Libyans took to the streets in January 2011 to protest the autocratic 42-year rule of Colonel Muammar al-Gaddafi. Gaddafi was none too pleased by the demonstrations calling for his removal. In February that year, he appeared on state television to deliver an infamous speech in which he vowed to cleanse Libya, and I quote, inch by inch, home by home, room by room, street by street, person by person. Following violent repression by regime forces, protests soon turned into clashes and NATO launched a military intervention, leading to a full-blown civil war. Gaddafi's power dwindled over time and his brutal murder in October 2011 marked the end of his reign. (laughs) Libya subsequently entered a transitional political process that came to a halt in 2014, when a political scuffle over the election of a new House of Representatives led to a second civil war. The newly elected parliament moved to Tobruk in the east of Libya, And in 2015, the United Nations established the Government of National Accord, or GNA, based in capital Tripoli. Another actor that rose to prominence in recent years is Khalifa Haftar, head of the Libyan National Army, or LNA, which is backed by the East-based parliament. In 2019, Libya experienced another bout of heavy fighting after Haftar launched an offensive to capture Tripoli from the GNA. The LNA ended up losing its bid to take over the capital in 2020, but the conflict left more than 2,000 casualties and displaced at least 146,000 Libyans. Libya's political and security challenges in the aftermath of the Arab Spring are far too complex to fully outline in this segment. So too is the devastation they have caused to Libyans. In addition to being subjected to wartime instability and violence, Libyans are having to deal with an economic crisis in their oil-rich country, as well as a critical lack of public services such as electricity and water. Libya has become a hub for human rights abuses committed by armed groups with varying loyalties and their foreign backers, which not only puts Libyans at risk, but also refugees and migrants who pass through the country to cross the Mediterranean. Hala Bougagis is a Tripoli-based lawyer and co-founder of Jusur Libya, a think tank focused on women's issues. 
She spoke to me about the ways in which years of conflict have weighed on Libyans' daily lives and sense of unity. I think this, the, the political crisis is really multidimensional. Yeah, so it's really affecting the economic situation of the, of the country and really increasing the daily struggle of the citizens. And also it's really have an effect on the public services, which we lack in Libya. So there is no power, no water, no uh, public services uh, whatsoever. But the most important, it started to affect the people, actually. And uh, people are started to more and more be distanced, especially in the, in the conflict areas. So in the last war, it was very concerning. There was so many hate speech, for instance, and people started to call each other, uh, you know, Garbawi, Shergawi, so Eastern, Westerner. And they started to see that there are so many differences. Everything can, can be fixed. But the problem is if the people lose the sense of belonging to the state and if they lose the sense of unity, this will be really difficult and a real challenge to build a state. Throughout the years, the UN and individual countries have held numerous talks and conferences in an effort to address Libya's institutional split, the latest being a peace process held by the UN Support Mission in Libya, or UNSMIL, which saw all parties agree to a date for an upcoming elections process. Though ambitious, the UNSMIL-sponsored talks were met with some criticism. I don't think that the results will be promising, to be honest. I'm sorry to be pessimistic, but I think that UNSMIL again failed to represent all the Libyans on the, the negotiation table. And I think this is a big problem that we will face. Many people on, this, on that table, they are taking this as a chance to escape the accountability, to be released from their uh, past misconduct. And this is a problem. State building, it requires transparency and accountability. If you just will give a passing ticket to the people who had a big role in, in destroying the country or to make or not destroying, but to, to bring the country into this current situation and to give them the victory of being part of the solution of, or part of, the, of being a peace builder, this is not right. And I think it's not only it's not right, it's not sustainable. We cannot afford to have another world. It's very difficult, it's very costly, and, you know, the country is already in ruins. In spite of Libya's descent into chaos following the Arab Spring, Bougaigui said the essence of the revolution lives on in the country's tireless civil society, which faces challenges of its own. The only thing that still somehow represents the spirit of Arab Spring in, in Libya is the civil society, although there is so many issues with the civil society. So more and more, and because of the difficult humanitarian situation in the country, uh, we see that the civil society uh, organization turned from their major role as agent of change, as whistleblowers, as the shadow um, governments, if I may say. And they are started to be more and more service providers, you know. So they started to compensate to the absence of the government in providing the basic uh, services. And this made, you know, the work in advocacy or in lobbying or in changing the current situation, or as I said, to report misconduct or to do, to do their work as a whistleblower. This, is, this you cannot see anymore in Libya. It's a quite risky to work in the civil society sector. So there is lots of personal safety concern to work in the, in, 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 in the civil society. Outspoken Libyan women are especially susceptible to being silenced. In June 2014, lawyer and human rights activist Salo Bougaigis was assassinated in her Benghazi home. A month later in the eastern city of Darna, former member of parliament Farih al-Bargawi was gunned down in broad daylight. 
In 2015, 35-year-old activist Intisar al-Hasayri and her aunt were shot dead in Tripoli. Their bodies were found in the trunk of al-Hasayri's car. In July 2019, Siham Sergewa, a member of the East-based parliament who criticized the LNA offensive on Tripoli, was abducted in Benghazi by forces loyal to Khalifa Haftar. Her whereabouts remain unknown. And in November this year, Benghazi-based lawyer Hanan al-Barasi, who openly criticized violations by armed groups in eastern Libya, was shot dead by unidentified gunmen. During the revolution and in its aftermath, Libyan women took charge of making their voices heard as leaders, advocates, and critics. In recent years, however, their place in Libya has been shrinking and struggling. The Arab Spring, it, it, it was really supported by women, by Libyan women from the very beginning. Since the days they were just protesting in front of the courts in Benghazi. But then I think what we've witnessed throughout the years, especially in 2014, that these icons have been transferred to victims. And I think this is like a fate that most of the women rights defenders faced, that they will be either assassinated or they will be forced to leave the country, to stay in the exile, or they will just, you know, disappear because of all the burden that they will have. After Salwa Bugayga's assassination and other uh, women assassination, there was like a quiet moment for the women rights. It was quite scary because nobody, no women could talk about the cause anymore. And now we, we have more civil society uh, organization working for women cause, but still women are struggling. And uh, we still have a major problem when it comes to the violence against women. People, they don't recognize, they don't want to admit that women in Libya are subject to violence. My general perspective about women in Libya that we're always seen as our issue is not the major. It's not, the, it's never the priority. It's always like the, the last in the list of priorities. Violence against women is one of the many urgent issues that international dialogues centering Libya are failing to address. Since the revolution, Libya has seen horrific war crimes, widespread corruption, internally displaced peoples, missing persons, sexual violence, and a host of other problems costing lives and futures in a country once teeming with hope for better days. We will need an open talk in Libya, really. Uh, and by that, I think we will need to address the grievances that we have in the country. And these grievances is really old, you know, it's it's even from the from the Gaddafi times. And also after the revolution, there are so many grievances. There, there were so many mistakes. You cannot build a state without it, the people. It's the, we, uh, the people are the key in building the state. And if you have people who really have, you know, grudges or they don't feel that they belong to this land or this, you know, space, this will not be successful. This will not be a sustainable. And that's why I think what we really need is to talk seriously about reconciliation. It's to open the old wounds uh, and the current ones, you know, and to start to address them and to start to have, you know, some sort of a common ground. I think all of these initiatives about reconciliation that happened in Libya, it's like a painkiller, yeah? It, they were used just to, you know, to give a good image, to fix a temporary issue. Nobody really talked about what happened before 2011 and, most importantly, what happened after. And the people who were really excluded or um, exiled or who really suffered after the revolution, I think we really need to have this open talk. If we manage then to find this, this common ground, there will be no external actors trying to fill these gaps and to control the destiny of the country, which is happening at the moment. Libya is facing numerous barriers on its path to build a functioning state. 
but one glaring issue with national and international mediation efforts has been the ongoing failure to account for the country's diversity. Most of the concentration when it comes to sort of development or political situation has always been on either Tripoli or, or Benghazi or both. Abdelhadi Suleiman is the head of Fezzan Libya, a non-profit organization that advocates for Libya's often-neglected southern region. The south of Libya is home to about half a million of the country's population of approximately 6.9 million. The region's diverse inhabitants include indigenous groups such as the Tuareg and the Tubu. Libya's biggest oil and water reserves are also based in the region. This includes the Sharada oil field and the Great Man-Made River, both of which were targeted in the midst of Libya's power struggle. Yet people in the south of Libya continue to face deplorable living conditions and high rates of criminal activity, including in Sebha, its biggest city. During his rule, Gaddafi boasted about his tribal roots in the south, which Suleiman said factored into the region's marginalization after the Arab Spring. There was this perception or this image that, you know, the south was very much pro-Gaddafi, uh, simply because he did have obviously his tribe that were based in the south and many of his supporters were in the south. Uh, and then after the revolution, I think a lot of Libyans assumed that, you know, it was still the case that the south was very much pro-Gaddafi rather than anti-Gaddafi, which isn't quite true. It was kind of mixed, really, in the South. And so and what happened after the revolution was there was this continued sort of marginalization of the South by the centralized governments and the different authorities in, in the country. But even the marginalization didn't even really begin, you know, in the South uh, from 2011. It was even happening during Gaddafi's time. Uh, a lot of people assumed that, you know, because Gaddafi was in power or because his tribe was there, that, in the south was this amazing sort of region where it was, you know, well-developed and everything and rich people, but it was completely the opposite. It was probably the most underdeveloped uh, area or region in, in Libya during Gaddafi's time. Fizan Libya is primarily known for its social media presence, which has cultivated a substantial following. The group has served as a media hub for news from the region, as well as amplified its advocacy and community-focused efforts. Fezzan Libya has coordinated international humanitarian and development aid to support the South. UN agencies and the Dutch government, among others, have provided assistance to locals neglected by Libyan authorities, despite the presence of representatives from both the GNA and the East-based parliament in the region. In an effort to build Libya from the ground up, the organization also works with local partners to promote peacebuilding and political participation among youth, women, and minority groups in the region. First, you know, four or five years, it was very marginalized and uh, forgotten about in every single aspect. But we managed, and along with quite a few other organizations, to get that attention. And we've managed to, you know, bring in a lot of international organizations to the South, do some work. And we've seen some positive changes, uh, at least in terms of development anyway. We're seeing, you know, youth becoming more active. And even though the, the situation hasn't always improved, I think the people seems a bit more, uh, or the youth seems to be a bit more optimistic. That's the light for us at the end of the tunnel. In the South, uh, with its diversity, need to be more involved and uh, need to have more of a say in the political situation and the, in the future of the country. On February 17, 2021, Libyans will mark a bittersweet 10th anniversary of their country's uprising. Libya has struggled to find itself throughout this turbulent decade as political crises and violent conflict remain prevalent. Despite this, Libyan civil society stands as a strong pillar of the values that drove the revolution and as a vision for a conflict-weary nation that not all hope is lost in the rubble.
Thank you for listening to part one of the New Arab Voices Arab Spring Special. Make sure to tune in to part two, where we'll be speaking on Egypt, Yemen, and Syria. Our guests will include Mona El-Tahawi, Afran Nasser, and Khaloud Helmi. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.